0: Welcome to the Veterans for Peace radio hour and podcast on Radio Free Nashville 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Okay, Harvey and I are both on domestic outings and so we are going to repeat one of our important and popular shows. To set it up, I have just completed a 16-week session with the Veterans Administration, with the VA, on Moral Injury, where I shared my military experience along with other veterans and how we were morally injured. With that, we are going to reshare our discussion with Dr. Kelly denton Borhog of Moravian University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, about Moral Injury and her wonderful and helpful book, And Then Your Soul Is Gone, Moral Injury and the U.S. War Culture. Now, while this is often a veteran issue, as you listen, you may realize that moral injury may also be a societal issue for all Americans. So after a quick logistical announcement, we will get to Dr. Kelly Denton-Borhawk. Okay, my name is Jim Waldemuth, and I'm normally here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harry Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. Take a breath. All right. This radio show and podcast is on stations across the country. Thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network, and we're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcasts, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans Peach Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by you, the listener, because it is you that keeps Radio Free Nashville going, and as a result, this radio show is then picked up by the Pacifica Radio Network so that we are heard across the country. So if you think this is important, just go to RadioFreeNashville.org, click on the Donate button, and keep Harvey and I on the air in every time zone. And while you're there, or while you're at it, if you support the work of Veterans for Peace, just go to our site, veteransforpeace.org. While the mainstream media, YouTube, Twitter, and other platforms are censoring voices of activism and dissent, we will continue to share those voices who stand up against the establishment, who stand up against the military, industrial, congressional, media, corporate complex, who stand up for us, the global us. Okay, now that that is done, here is our discussion with Dr. Kelly denton Borhog. From November 2022. So today our special guest is Dr. Kelly Denton-Borog. She's professor of religion at Moravian University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Co-director, Peace and Justice Studies minor, executive director, In Mm -hmm. Focus Centers of Investigation. She's the author, And Then Your Soul is Gone, Moral Injury and U.S. War Culture, and U.S. War Culture, Sacrifice, and Salvation. Uh, She's written for The Nation. You can easily find her by just doing a Google search of Kelly Denton Borhog B-O-R-H-A-U-G. So, Kelly, what else would you like people to know about you before we really get going?
1: Um, Well, I'm just delighted to be with you and um, delighted to be with all of your listeners I'm very committed to working in the peace-building community. More than anything, my commitment has to do with trying to assist peace to an analysis of the context in which we're living that can uh, address the the depth of of the concealment of war culture.
0: So um, I- I'm reading your latest book. And that's the one, and then your soul is gone. Moral injury in U.S. war culture. I am uh, astounded by just how important it is and wondering why more, why this information isn't more available. There's a level of intensity uh, along with r- revealing some truths that are right in our face, but we don't see them. Mm. And so I want to know how you came to get into this and write a book such as this, and then how did you decide, after you explained that, Mm -hmm. how did you decide what to call your book, and then the picture on the front? Mm, Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah, thank you for for all those good questions. So there there is a little bit of a story as to how I got into this line of work. (laughs) It was not something that I ever really intended to do with my life, and it really has to do with the events of 9-11. Not too long before 9-11, I had completed my PhD, and I'm a what's known as a theological ethicist. I, I work in Christian theology and social ethics, and I had been looking at images and understandings of Christian redemption or salvation, and especially dealing with images having to do with Christian sacrifice. I was really immersed in literature that was critical about those images and that rhetoric and those kinds of understandings because of the way in which they have throughout history tended to marginalize, exploit, and really grind up, especially marginalized populations. So that was what I was immersed in uh, just before the the terrible events of 9-11. And I, I think that all of us who um, had critical consciousness at that time, we knew fairly quickly that these events were gonna change our world, but I don't think any of us had the concept regarding how, how massively and deeply these events would impact our world. But I noticed that really just with amazing speed, we were going to war. I mean, we went to war within a couple of months. And there was simply no question, but that we were going to war. And we were told by our political leaders that it was a necessary sacrifice. And the language, the, 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 what I'm gonna call the civil religious language around the drive to war, I think it was as if it hit me in the face because of all of this training and education that I had been involved in. And I thought, oh my goodness, what the heck is this? How is religion mixed up in this political rhetoric that is justifying this unbelievable drive to war? And so I started pulling on that thread. And little did I know (laughs) at the time that that would really become my life's work for the next more than 20 years. But that's really what happened. I started writing articles. And before I knew it, I was working on my first book, which is titled U.S. War Culture, Sacrifice, and Salvation, and that's a book where I really analyze all of those relationships between the Christian theology of sacrifice as is, as it is applied to the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth and what I came to call U.S. war culture. And really what happened for me as I was immersed in all of that was that in a real way, for the first time in my life, I awoke to the depth of the just unbelievably pervasive militarization of the United States and i begin to ask you know why was i not really so aware of this before the more that i learned about the depth and the breadth of war culture the more shocked i was at how widespread it was how much it influenced everything and simultaneously how seemingly unconscious most of us citizens are of its impact uh, in our world and in our own lives. So that is what really um, started the drive towards this overwhelming emphasis in my my life, in my scholarly work, um, in my writing, and in my activism. So that began over 20 years ago, and maybe around 10 years or so, um, I had the opportunity to hear the eminent psychologist Jonathan Shea uh, at a, a wonderful conference that took place in New York City at Riverside Church, which some of your listeners may know is where Martin Luther King gave his unforgettable speech beyond Vietnam. And there at that conference for the first time, I also had the opportunity to listen to veterans, to journalists and others talk about what they called moral injury. And that was the first time that I heard that, 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 that terminology. Jonathan Shea coined it. And he coined that terminology to try to describe a wound of war that he had encountered over and over again in his work with Vietnam veterans that could not be, could not be squared with especially the typical kinds of psychological diagnoses That were being applied to their experiences. So, PTSD, um, which, you know, again, your listeners will know that I think it was around 1980 or so that that began to be more widely understood as a a terrible affliction, a terrible wound of war. But moral injury is really something different from PTSD. And and Jonathan Shea was one of the early researchers who really began to help us to understand how and why it's different. Since that time, there's been literally an avalanche of research and literature that has been developed on moral injury. And my work is just, you know, one small piece of it. I'm I'm very, very grateful that there has been such wonderful and important attention paid to um to moral injury. Um, but so what I want to say is that moral injury is is not a psychological, pathological problem. It has nothing to do with a sort of weakness in a person's psyche. It has to do with what happens to people when they are exposed to the brutalities and the devastation of war. And one of the ways that I define moral injury is to say that it is an assault to the moral core of a person's center of being. And my work um, and what the book is really about is to try to better understand how moral injury grows inevitably out of the sediment of US war culture. So what I have tried to do is to develop a social analysis of, of war culture to show how and why Moral injury uh, among veterans, but also among other people who are exposed to the brutalities and devastation of war experience this then to answer the other parts of your question along the way of my of my work, I've really appreciated some of the just the marvelous writing that has come out of veteran authors. Their descriptions of moral injury are unforgettable and searing. And the title of my book alludes to um, the work of one such author. His name is Kevin Powers. Uh, he is a, a, a veteran of the Iraq War, and he wrote a novel. He's written many things, but he wrote a novel called The Yellow Birds. The, 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 the title of my book comes from one passage in his book, that is basically a stream of consciousness of the novel's protagonist, uh, a recently returned um, service member from the fields of battle who is cycling down into a dark void of self and even possibly other destruction. And the way that he describes his his inner world is that he says that his experience is like the experience, he doesn't use the language of moral injury, but I, I will. It's as if moral injury is like acid seeping down into your soul, and then your soul is gone. So I titled the book, And Then Your Soul Is Gone, because the language of loss of soul is one that you come across again and again and again in the writing and in the testimonies of people who are living with moral injury that it feels as though they have lost their very soul and and that's a profound experience to bear witness to and then let me just say a word about the um the image on the book cover when i was working on the book and really deliberating um, about how to find an appropriate image that could begin to communicate the depth of the pain of moral injury i I came upon I came upon photographs of of the remarkable sculpture that is on the cover of the book. And it's called um Melancholy. It is by a um, Romanian sculptor whose name is Albert. Georgie. It is it is an image that is linked to the experience of, of, of war. But I, I linked out to the sculptor and told him what I was doing and asked for permission to use that image. And he was so gracious and um, immediately supportive and gave me permission to use it. So I'm really grateful to him because I think it just communicates what moral injury feels like the experience of it so powerfully
0: it's like a a body without the inside and the head drooping down so it's it's a powerful image and it's clearly reflective of what you're talking about in the book are there symptoms to moral injury
1: yes there 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 absolutely are I think let's let's talk just a little bit about about the experience of moral injury, and then we can talk about sort of the the and I and I really appreciate what um, psychologist Peter Yeomans um, has developed as language to try to describe this. He prefers not to use the language that is more typical of psychology, sort of symptomology. But instead, he talks about the expressions of moral injury. So we can talk about those. But uh, essentially, moral injury is the experience of intolerable moral pain. And, and so really, the place to start is to think about, well, what is moral pain? What is moral pain? And uh, writer uh, Peter Marin has has explored this in a, in a powerful way that I find really helpful he talks about three different types of moral pain. And I think the third type, which builds upon the first two, is really that experience of moral injury. So the first type of moral pain could be described as bad conscience, right? You have a bad conscience because you feel as if you you did something wrong. You're finding it difficult to live with, with something in your experience, right? Then the second type of moral pain has to do with a a wider landscape, experiencing the pain and the suffering of the world. And here's where we might link this second type to the experience of war and its devastation. The experience of war is one in which it's impossible not to encounter devastating pain and suffering of, of the world of war. But then the the third type of moral pain is is where it really becomes intolerable. And and, and here's the way that Marin describes it. Um, This type of, of, of moral pain has to do with experiencing the pain and the suffering of the world and finding oneself unable to meaningfully intervene. So it's that element of sort of helplessness or powerlessness to change it and the way in which it also changes oneself, despite one's best efforts, or despite one's strongest core of inner strength, this just overwhelming devastation and pain. A psych- an important psychologist by the name of Brett Yitz, Litz, excuse me, and his colleagues have talked about two different prongs of moral injury. One experience of moral injury has to do with the sense that I have betrayed my own most um, significant moral compass. I'm, I'm out of sync with who I am and the morals that I always assumed were core to my being and core to my way of living. A second prong of moral injury has to do with the sense of being betrayed or transgressed morally by others, and especially by people in authority. So this might be in the context of military moral injury, it might be the sense of of being betrayed by military um, authorities who were in a position of power over a person. It might be a sense of being betrayed by one's political leaders. It can also be a sense of feeling betrayal or feeling betrayed by one's fellow citizens, by the United States itself. And and I've heard veterans express all of these, these different elements of of moral injury. But then you ask, you know, how does this get expressed? Well, I'm gonna, uh, I'll start with the absolutely most dreadful and unacceptable element that every citizen should feel shocked by and should feel absolutely compelled to somehow address, and that is um, the level of service member and veteran suicide in the United States. Now, there's not a a one-to-one correlation, but moral injury researchers have demonstrated that moral injury is is definitely linked to the experience of suicide among both service members and um, veterans in the United States. And perhaps your listeners may know that somewhere around 17 veterans end their lives by suicide every day in the United States. And And I am also told that The number one cause of death um, on the part of veterans is accidental death. And um, there are moral injury researchers who are very concerned that these quote-unquote accidental deaths may not all be entirely accidental, but may also to one degree or another be driven by moral injury. One other really just terribly alarming statistic has to do with the number of young veterans who are committing suicide. So one study demonstrated that the suicides of veterans aged 18 to 34 increased by 76% Mm -hmm. since 2005. And that within that age group of veterans, the suicide rate is 2.5 times the suicide rate of the adjusted general population. The suicide rates have been growing pretty much every year. In the year 2001, the active duty army saw a nearly 20% rise. Marine Corps suicides went up by more than 30%. We we, we should be just absolutely in a state of emergency um, about all of this. So that is I think the most alarming expression of moral injury but there are many other expressions too and some of the visible expressions of moral injury are similar to the symptoms of PTSD so self-harm isolation increased risk-taking behaviors relationship difficulties increased participation in violence All of these kinds of expressions have been associated with the experience of moral injury. One of the expressions that I, I, uh, it seems as though lately I have just been hearing so, so much about is this sense of isolation. And that just breaks my heart that people who are in such terrible moral pain feel so alone and feel very silenced by um, U.S. culture. Um, feel alienated from U.S. culture.
0: You're listening to Dr. Kelly Denton Warhog.
2: The other thing that I've thought about a lot is <clears throat> moral injury, moral distress uh, resulting in, in uh, this kind of suffering uh, is actually a sign of a conscience that works, that functions, and how many perpetrators uh, manage not to feel anything. So, in some ways, you know, I see uh, a lot of the the casualties of, of all this are, are people who are morally bereft or or empty, or which is almost you know more tragic than uh, than the pain of. I mean, uh, we we pay a you know a cost as a society, as a culture, in our disacceptance of it and refusal to face the reality.
1: Right. they, yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, so l- let me just say this, and then I want to move directly into addressing the important point that that you're raising, Harvey. So, uh, according to the cost of war project, over seven thousand u s service members were killed in post nine eleven war operations. But over thirty thousand service members and veterans of the post nine eleven wars have committed suicide, All right. So that that should really, really just stop us in our tracks. But to your point, Harvey, this, what you're saying really gets to exactly the, um, the dissonance that I wanted to explore in my own work, That it, something about our culture that just really didn't make sense to me. And that was the more that I began to understand the depth and breadth of U.S. war culture, the more I had to ask myself, why didn't I know about this before? And um, why don't other people know about it? And then similarly, as as you are saying, the more that I learned about the costs of war to the people who we say we most highly esteem, our service members and our veterans, why do we pay so little attention? Why Why does there seem to be so little awareness of this reality? How can we be so asleep with respect to what's really going on. So that seemed to me to be just a huge knot that um, was incomprehensible and that I really wanted to try to unravel and, and understand. And that's really what led me into trying to better understand the ways that war culture itself is really successfully concealed from our alert consciousness in the United States. So in my work, what I do is I, I try to explore how the violence of U.S. war culture actually works in the, in the U.S. landscape. And then the ways that it works, how the ways that it works promote blindness among U.S. citizens. And, and so I, I drew upon a theoretical framework from a wonderful peace researcher uh, by the name of Johan Galtung. He developed this framework called the violence triangle. And it's really pretty simple. What he does is to separate violence into three prongs of a triangle. All the three prongs are very interrelated, but each of them represents a different face of violence. So the first prong of the triangle is direct violence. That's the type of violence that we see and that is most active and direct and visible Um, we might say that in terms of what we've just been talking about it's it's the suicides the 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 violence of people actually taking their lives it's also the the visible violence of war the loss of combatants the loss of civilians the destruction of infrastructure and environment and, and so many other things that's direct violence but direct violence is never the whole story, although we usually act as though it is. And because we pay so little attention to the other two prongs of the triangle, we end up really missing the story. Um, So the second prong of the triangle has to do with structural forms of violence. And these are less visible. They're they're harder to see because they are buried in institutions and the, the work of institutions And by and large, those institutions are legitimated and normalized in our society. And so even though much of the work that they do is incredibly violent, we tend not to think of it in that way. So in my work, I have explored the political economy of war and the empire of U.S. military bases as two examples of overwhelming structural violence in U.S. war culture. Just to share a few very basic facts, now the U.S. spends the equivalent of the next nine highest spending nations combined to finance the violence of our wars. It's estimated that by the end of the century, we may spend a trillion dollars a year.
0: Or next year. <laughs> I, think we're, I
2: think we're pretty close to that right now.
1: I, 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 I like to use the definition of um, Nick Terse, who has expanded the kind of traditional definition of the military-industrial complex to include so many different facets of industries and institutions that are involved in the work of the violence of war. So he defines the military-industrial complex today as a military, industrial, technological, entertainment, academic, scientific, media, intelligence, homeland security, surveillance, national security corporate complex. So there's structural violence. I <clears throat> wish you would include religion. <laughs>
0: yeah, for sure.
1: Because religion is also involved in that.
0: You make a point in your book
1: mm-hmm.
0: about how Christianity has been manipulated to advance this war culture.
1: Right. So that takes us to the third prong of the violence triangle um and that is the prong of cultural violence and what what's really important for us to understand about that third prong and this this is what was such an aha moment for me is that cultural violence is extremely difficult to see um it it we tend not to see it because for starters it's pre-reflective it's the world that we are born into cultural violence has to do with the worldviews, the ideologies, the loyalties that basically are like the water that we swim in from the time that we are born. And so we absolutely tend not to, not to question uh, the forms of cultural violence. But, but Galton would insist that cultural violence is really the seabed from which both structural violence and then eventually direct violence emerge and so we can't understand we can't understand what's happening with any kind of violence including the violence of moral injury unless we dig down through the direct violence to the structural violence all the way down to the seabed of cultural violence in my own work to try to better understand the cultural violence of moral injury i've explored three different elements of cultural violence i look at what i call colliding toxic masculinities. Um, I look at religion, especially civil religious Christianity in the United States and the way that that intertwines with understandings of nationalism. So, and I think all of those three elements um, really work together. What's important about this is that this really helped me to answer the question, why don't we see it and why here, here is another thing. <laughs> Why do people get so upset with me when I talk about this?
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> because they
2: might, they might even get violent.
1: <laughs> once I started going around and talking about the things that I were discovering, I discovered that people would get really upset. <laughs> a lot mm-hmm. of people, and for a while, that really confused me. But eventually, what I what I came to understood was that. I was treading on sacred identities that people have to to, to raise questions about those identities. And those are identities that have to do with people's commitment to a particular understanding of what it means to be a man or a woman, what it means to be committed to a particular religious tradition, what it means to be a citizen, what it means to be um, a person who... Is loyal to their country. Once, if when they felt that I was treading on that territory, they become defensive, mm-hmm. and I, I really had to had to understand that, and even try to develop some sympathy for the fact that it's really painful for, pe- for people
2: mm-hmm. to
1: have all of that questioned, especially when I got to the point of beginning to look into the way that religion is mixed up in all of this, the clouds really started clearing for me. And I felt like I began to really understand what was going on so much better. Because, and this takes us all the way back to those early months and years after the events of 9-11, almost immediately, I was very aware of the way in which our political leaders were manipulating and exploiting Christian verses from the, the Christian Bible, And also understandings, theological understandings from Christianity, um, drawing upon these and really shamelessly exploiting them in order to sacralize the wars that we were involved in. Mm -hmm. So I've just written about this. I I could share one one example of this that your listeners might find alarming. (laughs) Please do. I, I guess I hope they'll find it alarming because I certainly did. So here's an example of this from President, then President George Bush from um, 2008. And again, you may remember that the the wars were not going well at all in 2008. And um, there was a huge effort on the part of um, the, the administration at that time to sort of bolster the wars and try to build up greater support in the country because um, things were going badly and there was a lot of loss of life and it looked as though it was, it w- we were in for just a long, protracted, ugly period of, of violence. So here's what President Bush said in one of his radio addresses. And this happened to be on, week- on Easter weekend. Mm-hmm. He said, this weekend, families across America are coming together to celebrate Easter. During this special and holy time of year, millions of Americans pause to remember a sacrifice that transcended the grave and redeemed the world. On Easter, we hold in our hearts those who will be spending this holiday far from home, our troops. I deeply appreciate the sacrifice that they and their families are making. On Easter, we especially remember those who have given their lives for the cause of freedom. These brave individuals have lived out the words of the gospel, quote, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Unquote, and that verse is from the Gospel of John, chapter fifteen, verse thirteen. So, what I want to invite your invite your listeners to pay attention to is the sacrificial language. So, what's going on here is not only what I would call a shameless um, exploitation of this of this verse from John, in 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 which um, there is such a, a dissonant Manipulation of, of this passage being used to uh, cast a sort of sacred sheen over this over the destructiveness of war, but also the sacrificial rhetoric and 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 a, a kind of what I would call a cognitive metaphor or a way of thinking. So we, we use in the United States exactly the same language to talk about what Jesus did on the cross as we do to describe the injuries and especially the deaths of service members. In both cases, we call them the ultimate sacrifice. And you find this language swinging back and forth between religious and quote unquote secular or political and military and all kinds of cultural contexts as well, where this language will be used to talk about what's going on with service members. I find that completely unacceptable. It doesn't make any sense. Biblical scholars agree that Jesus of Nazareth rejected militarized force to try to build this kind of um, alignment between the life and the death of Jesus of Nazareth and what happens in the injuries and deaths of service members in the context of militarized violence is just a total disconnect. But Mm because the language and because the logic is the same, this and because we're so familiar with it, again, it's pre-reflective, we tend not to question it. And it, it simply makes sense to us. And I might also add that this same kind of language really rises to the surface at times of national commemoration, like Veterans Day. So we were hearing this all over the place yesterday. And at such times of national commemoration, there are many churches who hold their own rituals, commemorations in which they also use the language and even more firmly tie those connotations into place. But the consequences are devastating. Mm -hmm. They're devastating because these practices disable our clearer understanding of what violence is and what it actually does. It disables that by attributing this um, sort of sacred canopy um, over violence, making it much, much harder to kind of get to the bottom of what it actually is. And they're devastating in another way too. They're devastating because they silence service members and veterans. Right. Telling us what actually really happened. How can service members and veterans tell us about terrible and awful actual experiences that are endemic to any militarized context when the citizenry insists on Describing those same contexts as a, a kind of ultimate sacred experience, exactly. That is so silencing, and and and, and uh, devastating to both service members and and veterans.
0: My wife and I go to a Unity Church, and Unity is you know generally more peace oriented, more blessed are the peacemakers, but still around mm-hmm. Veterans Day, they will honor veterans. You have to stand up and you have to listen to Anchors Away or whatever the Marine Corps hymn is. Got to the point where my wife really had to just nudge me. And I said, no, I can't do it. But I did write the pastor. And I said, you really don't have to do that for me. You can honor me if you want. If you want to say, I Jim was a sixth grade teacher for a while. Uh, but this, this, this obligatory, and especially here in Tennessee, honoring of veterans, it silences the, the 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 rest of the public.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, one one of the my goals in 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 my work, maybe maybe one of the most important goals I have is to try to assist peace builders to address to address these kinds of dynamics with a stronger toolkit. Along the way of this work, I began to find it so remarkable that peace builders are so easily labeled as unrealistic and naive by the proponents of war. When it seems to me that really the exact opposite is much more true, that the proponents of war and violence keep telling us that this is going to bring about greater peace when in fact it, it just is not the case at all. But because it seems to me, peace builders don't have a strong enough toolkit to sort of dismantle war culture and especially sacred war culture that um, they are very easily dismissed. Um, So I hope that you I mean I wrote a piece about this that has been migrating around the progressive internet um it came out on Friday and you can pretty easily find it yeah, I read cool. it okay mm-hmm. share it with your pastor <laughs> and yeah. have, you know have a little uh, Sunday school um gathering to mm-hmm. talk about it because um I think one one place what one of the things that I'm really hoping for is that religious communities will really take a harder look at what they're doing and um, become less part of the problem and more part of the solution by calling this out instead of participating in it.
2: Well, one of the uh, issues that Veterans for Peace has been working on for a number of years is the fact that, you know, November 11th was originally a day dedicated to peace, Mm -hmm. both by Presidential proclamation and by congressional uh, by law that it was a day to be set aside for peace and uh, for activities uh, showing our gratitude for peace and the importance of maintaining it through better understanding with all other nations. And you know, <clears throat> in 1954, all of a sudden it's Veterans Day. You never hear a word about peace. Peace has has become almost. Uh, a word that uh, you don't hear anymore.
1: Isn't that the truth? And and it leads it leads one to to ask the question: Why are we so committed to violence? Mm-hmm. What is that? So much so that to you know to raise questions about it, or even to talk about alternatives that have to do with peace mm-hmm. building, mm-hmm. come across as threatening to many people. You know, and I, I again, I just come across this again and again, and um, I really struggle to understand it. Although what I've what I just have come to more deeply understand is that the United States is a deeply violent nation. And Martin Luther
2: King stated that pretty emphatically yeah, in it, Riverside Church.
1: <laughs> it is in our DNA. I mean, that we you know, he said we are the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. And so we still are. What I have come to understand is that it is very much a part of our identity as a nation. In fact, again, what I came to understand is that for many Americans, I think especially this grew in the post 9-11 period, that the the military hegemony of the United States over the rest of the world became the most important identifying factor of what it means to be an American for many, many citizens. These days, I'm really trying to do thinking about well, what would it mean to try to develop a different sort of nationalism if you if you tried to think about the important elements of American citizenship that have nothing to do with war, <laughs> what would come to mind? Um, and I, I think for many people, that's somewhat of a struggle. But you know we're we're also very fearful, I think, as a nation and trying to 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 better understand the psychology of why mm-hmm. we're so fearful and why we believe so deeply that this massive militarization and and military hegemony over the rest of the world will provide security is also mm-hmm. really worth digging into because mm-hmm. it seems to me that for the most part history shows that exactly the opposite is true right when when I when I first heard Jonathan Shea, and this is, you know, more than 10 years ago now, when I first heard Jonathan Shea talk about moral injury and first heard these veterans and and journalists testify about the experience of moral injury in their own lives. That night I I went back to my hotel room at this conference and I I just had this sort of nagging thought in my mind that I had to somehow figure out. I started writing notes to myself on a big yellow pad. And finally I realized what it was that was just nagging at me. And it it was this um, sort of like a light bulb of awareness. I thought this is such a devastating experience. And if people of the United States could only see this and hear about this and bear witness to it, it would be much harder for us to live in our own war culture in an unbothered way. We would have to address our war culture that is at the basis of this experience of moral mm-hmm. injury. And I still believe that there's truth to that. And, and so I, I, I really have been so appreciative of and, and trying to participate along with others who are developing alternatives, especially on these days like Veterans Day and Memorial Day and Fourth of July and so forth. Instead of the flyovers and the military hymns and the fireworks and the commodification of veterans in all of the advertisement, and instead of giving veterans 10% off at Starbucks or wherever... The alternative is developing alternatives to invite people who actually have that experience of moral injury in their lives to testify honestly about the experience and to try to create compassionate listening communities to really take that in. And Is
0: that that when you're talking about a community healing ceremony?
1: That's one example. So the The moral injury program that I've been privileged to to do some work with in the last years, um, based in Philadelphia, incorporates a, a healing ceremony, a community healing ceremony, with every group of veterans that go through a 12 week program um, through the VA. The healing ceremony centers around first preparing veterans to to give their testimony about they they offer up their own definition of moral injury in their own lives. and then they they give testimony about what their ex their actual experience of it has been. There are rituals of lament, of listening, looking one another in the eyes, offering solidarity with, and in welcoming veterans' home and commitment to, Trying to make some sort of a difference, and most importantly, a commitment on the part of civilians to try to help bear that intolerable, intolerable moral pain. I have witnessed that this is this is very true. That for veterans who are living with moral injury, the the worst part of this is is experiencing it so much in isolation. If If civilians, if citizens like me can listen and act in ways that authentically communicate to veterans, that we understand that they are disproportionately and unfairly carrying that moral pain. And if we step it up to try to bear a more proportionate share of the burden, that makes an enormous difference. And it not only does it make an enormous difference in the lives of individual veterans, but I believe that it will make a difference in terms of our own alertness to the devastation and the destructiveness of war culture, and maybe mm. help us to pressure decision-makers, all of the uh, those who control the strings of, of, of our economics to do things differently. And to start moving the needle away from the, the, the levels of militarization of the United States that we experience at the present time, and hopefully towards towards greater peace and peace building.
0: Greater peace. I had a question. This has been nagging at me. Sure. I'm a Vietnam veteran. Harvey's a Vietnam veteran. You focus on post 9-11 veterans, mm-hmm. and I was wondering about the differences because Post-9-11 veterans were volunteers. There might have been a poverty that got them in there, but they're still volunteers. Me personally, even though I volunteered, I joined the Navy to avoid the Army. I I couldn't run off to Canada. I couldn't get Mm -hmm. a conscientious objector. And so I went into the military knowing that I was just doing what I could to avoid Vietnam. <clears throat> it didn't really happen, but I didn't go to the jungle, and okay. so I knew from the outset the chances are my government, the military, were going to betray me. Mm. I I knew from the the outset yeah. that what I was doing was finding a way to survive the next four years rather than finding myself um, in in a jungle. Do you have any research, or could that be the a problem that these current veterans face because they volunteered they were they they bought the kool-aid they were thinking that what was going on was right and that they were doing something honorable i never went in thinking that Mm. and so i'm i'm thinking these people have to go in and just when they realize good lord Mm -hmm. what's -hmm. your thoughts
1: um oh, that that such a such a a wonderful question thank you there is really something to the shame shame is one of the signifying moral emotions of moral Im- of moral injury feeling a sense of shame and both in the both in the literature about moral injury and also in the testimony from veterans that I have heard there is this common theme that because I volunteered I lose the right to complain I lose the right to say anything negative I I deserve what I got so so there is that and I've come across that a lot but honestly Jim as I listen to you my immediate response is I'm not sure if one situation is worse than the other and and, and for a couple of reasons. First of all, it seems to me that none of us really knows what the crushing suffering of the world of war is until we're in it, it seems to me. So even though you had suspicions or hunches or maybe evidence that your nation was not on the up and up with you, I still really wonder if you could have had any idea of what you were getting yourself into <laughs> before you got there and i think in that sense your situation is not <clears throat> different from the post 9/11 service members and then and then there's this this other thing i guess i would ask the question back to you as i listen to you it just it feels like a knife in my heart to imagine you and you must have been a young man maybe you were in your 20s
0: Nineteen.
1: Oh, good God. Okay. So you're 19. Your brain is not fully formed, right? Because your brain is not fully formed until you're 25. And you're faced with this literally a life and death choice. You don't really have a choice. You're trying to make the least worst choice in a terrible situation, knowing that you are putting yourself in an incredibly uncertain, risky, life-threatening, but you don't even know how life-threatening kind of context, and there's nothing different that you can really do. I mean, talk about being betrayed by people in authority whose responsibility should be to preserve and value your life and your well-being. That is what they should be doing for you as this up-and-coming young 19 year old man and instead they're laying this absolutely intolerable burden on you before you're even a fully formed adult that hurts me to to even try to imagine what that must have been like
0: well for those that are listening this is why this book is really intense and revealing for me Mm -hmm. it's it's just one of those things Harvey will know I'm, I'm I'm not very often found speechless, but I'm speechless. (laughs) I just, it's, and maybe, maybe I'm going to have to check with the Nashville VA to see if they've got some healing community healing ceremonies.
1: Well, here's one thing that I would say, and that is the the next healing ceremony that's going to take place um, in the Philadelphia VA is on December 8th and you can attend virtually. Oh, Okay. And and I please do. That would be
2: great. uh, Yeah, such a moving
1: experience. And my my you know my hope is that this will really will really spread. I I know that the people who um who are the co-founders and the facilitators of this program are um, in the work of preparing other leaders to take this into communities across the United States you know again i i can't help but think that if if we were to really develop these kinds of alternatives especially on veterans days and memorial days i just can't help but imagine that it would make some sort of a difference in this country and 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 more importantly in the lives of people like the two of you <laughs> and and so many others i'm going to i'm going to go to sleep tonight thinking about that question this last question and just how how painful and poignant it is thank you for raising it
0: you're you're welcome you're welcome the, the, your book and this topic could help change the culture and the culture really needs to be changed mm-hmm. so was there really anything
2: you really wanted to include that
1: uh... if you can point people to the book the article that was published on veterans day has taken off in a powerful way across the progressive Mm. internet.
0: And where do people find that article?
1: Well, it's been published everywhere, but it started in Tom Dispatch. They can find me in Tom Dispatch, and I I think I have four articles, most of which are about moral injury. I really delved into this issue of cultural violence, and I just Mm -hmm. believe that that is, is so critical for people to start trying to understand So please, please, please do point people to that article. And I'll be really grateful for that.
0: Will do. Well, we always end with a song Mm -hmm. uh, that relates, but it doesn't mean that you have to sing. Uh, (laughs) uh, But is is there a, a song that you might like us to finish the show with
1: Well, I'll I'll tell you one of the one of the songs that they often play at at the community healing ceremonies is um John Lennon's Imagine.
0: Okay. I guess we'll have to let you go.
1: Okay. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Bye. Right.
0: Bye. That was Dr. Kelly Denton Borhog. The book we we're talking about is And Then Your Soul Is Gone. Moral Injury And the U.S. war culture. The article she referenced is called "The Intolerable Price You Pay" and is easily found on TomDispatch.com. TomDispatch.com. To find her other work, just search Kelly Denton Borhag. Kelly Denton Borhag B O R H A U G. I cannot recommend her work too strongly, because if you are a veteran her work will help you understand. If you are a citizen of the US, it will help you realize. And now, as she requested, let's imagine.